Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This week, we also saw former President Trump get back into the news as he announced that he'll be launching a digital media network complete with a social media platform called Truth Social. With this venture, he seems to be taking aim at everyone in three distinct divisions, social media, subscription-based content and news, and even alternatives to internet services like Amazon Web Services. Truth Social could be launching in early 2022, but there seems to be a lot of work yet to be done as some reports said the site has already been hacked. For more on all this, we'll speak to Kia Kokolacheva, tech and business reporter at Axios. To be clear, this is all just a pitch deck for now. So right. whether or not we're going to see any of these pieces live is remains to be seen. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks like the company wants to have different divisions. They want to take on social media, which we're all very clear that former President Trump and his supporters don't feel like the existing companies are treating him and other conservatives fairly um, he wants to take on more traditional formats of media, um, you know, Netflix, the news channels, all that kind of stuff. And then apparently he wants to also include some more technology focused segments for the company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a pretty ambitious company, I have to say. Yeah, definitely. And let's delve into it a little bit more and just kind of break up these divisions. So Truth Social, obviously kind of a Twitter rival, it seems like, from things that people have seen already. This is obviously in direct relation to him being kicked off of the social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you know, he wants that kind of mouthpiece there again. And then some of the other things, like you said, uh, I guess uh, taking aim at either uh, Netflix and, and, and Disney Plus, you know, some type of streaming content platform, news. He mentioned iHeartMedia in there, so maybe podcasts. <laughs> And then kind of the other thing, you know, all, all platforms, right, to keep getting a message out. And as you mentioned, uh, things maybe like uh, AWS and uh, you know, the cloud services. I know there was a big, you know, thing going on where uh, he was saying, you know, conservative voices are being silenced and websites are being shut down. So this could be an opportunity there to grow on that side of things. As you mentioned, he got kicked off of the big, um, he got kicked off Twitter. And so there's a lot of commentary about social media services censoring him and other conservative folks to be clear. There's no evidence of that really happening um, on a systemic level. But yeah, I mean, it, it looks like the app he wants to launch later this year and into next year is going to be, you know, very Twitter-like from what's on the internet right now on the website. And I think just the general theme that you can carry into media streaming of different kinds and media channels of different kinds is very much this belief that there's a lot of censorship and gatekeeping going on and that, you know, if only CNN wasn't so liberal or if only, you know, Netflix wasn't choosing content the way that it's choosing it or if only Twitter and Facebook didn't have policies that censor certain people over other people, there would be space for him and for other folks on there. So it seems like the theme here is very much gatekeeping and censorship. Yes. And yeah, we've seen a lot, some similar trends on the technology infrastructure side. We've seen a lot of pretty right-wing websites get shut down from services 
like Cloudflare a few years ago, AWS, and some of the app stores weren't really happy with the way Parler, for example, was yeah. handling certain content moderation aspects. Yeah, it's not hard to see sort of the common thread across <clears throat> those three separate divisions that are outlined. Even as we saw with Parler, once it started gaining traction, getting more users, regulations started need to be happening. Uh, you know, this would be something that would also happen to former President Trump's venture. Let's talk about the business side of things, because the way this is being set up is a little interesting and uh, something I'm not very familiar with. It's, I guess it's called a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. And I guess they plan to go public without a like a fully fleshed out product. It's some interesting maneuvering, it seems like. A SPAC, as you mentioned, you know, it's a blank check company. It's effectively Shell. It raised money when it did its IPO a while ago. So that entity is public and is publicly traded at right now. Its price is now at over $45 from like just under 10 at market close yesterday. So you can already see how popular former President Trump's projects are uh, on the public markets. And then the idea is that it's going to acquire Trump Media and Technology Group, which is, uh, you know, the actual company that's supposed to be running all of these media and social media projects. And through that merger, the Trump Media and Technology Group is going to, in the end, be publicly traded and sort of take the place of the SPAC entity. Right now, you can at least pre-order, uh, it seems like, for Truth Social on the App Store. When is this, this whole thing supposed to be taking off? So the plan, and again, it's all, you know, remains to be seen, but the plan that they announced is that it's going to go into beta phase and beta testing later this year. And then in early 2022 is when it's supposed to actually launch formally. Well, we, as we mentioned at the beginning, we know that the president has been kind of toying with this for a long time, obviously, once he got kicked off Twitter. Uh, you had the scoop a few months ago that President Trump was being pitched this exact same thing, basically. But at the time, it didn't seem like he was biting just yet or he didn't want to put uh, his full name behind it. What do we know that's changed since then? President Trump himself has been very uh, vocal about all of these things. I just talked about censorship from social media companies, from the news companies being very biased. So it's not surprising that folks have been coming up with business proposals and different projects and companies and entities that he might be interested in and just kind of sewing together a lot of the themes that he talks about a lot. So, yeah, a few months ago, um, you know, we got a, a deck that had been pitched to him. The deck was pretty similar in spirit and even in some of the details to the one that got published yesterday formally for the Trump Media and Technology Group. We're still unclear as to who's running this company and whether or not it's the same group of folks. There's not a lot of details currently public about that. But yeah, I mean, this is very much in line with what you would expect former President Trump to be interested in doing. The president obviously is still very popular, so there probably will be a demand for something like this. But how big and will will it take over the mainstream, right? Will it truly rival some of these companies who are already well established and and so heavily used. Uh, we also heard that uh, you know the so uh, Truth Social was already hacked within a few hours of the announcement. People were able to sign up and set up profiles in the name of 
uh, of Donald Trump and Mike Pence. Uh, you know, so security is a thing that they might not have uh, fully fleshed out either. So a lot of stuff uh, still yet to happen on this. But uh, interesting look at it so far. Kia Kokolacheva, tech and business reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Finally, for this week, what happens when you order things online and send them back? You may think it makes its way back to the shelf and on its way to another person, but that's rarely true. Oftentimes, they make their way to bulk resellers overseas, they're stripped for parts, or just plain thrown away. Returns are a big problem for companies that are expected to have generous return policies as a default. These reverse logistics are many times cost prohibitive and a hassle to deal with. For more on the nasty logistics of returning your online items, we'll speak to Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. There are these sort of like the suite of behaviors that online shopping has incentivized people into. And sometimes not just incentivized, but explicitly encouraged people to adopt. Ordering multiple sizes, ordering stuff you're not sure about it with the promise that you can return it in 30 days or in a year or in six months or however long with no risk and with a full refund. Things like that. These promises, these incentives exist in order to convert people from shopping in person, which is what people have done since the dawn of time, (laughs) since as long as we've had commerce, to shopping online. And for a lot of types of purchases, clothing, shoes, cosmetics in particular, it was a little bit difficult to encourage people to start ordering these things on the internet because personal taste and uh, fit and sort of the indescribable qualities of something matter a lot to a person in these types of purchases. So in order to convert people to online shopping and to get them used to buying more and more types of goods on the internet, retailers basically had to set up this litany of policies to make people feel comfortable doing that, to take away all of the risk from buying a pair of jeans on the internet instead of driving to the mall and buying it in person. And That has really sort of shaped the way that people understand online shopping and that people understand what will happen after they buy something and their expectations of how stores will act if they want to send something back. So we're in a situation where people who shop online for shoes, for clothes, for cosmetics, for home furnishings, for literally anything, expect to be able to buy a bunch of stuff they don't know if they actually want or don't know if it will fit and return it and get their full refund and have weeks or sometimes months in order to do that. Yeah, Um, it's really baked in now. And there's I know there's people that shop specifically on that. It's like if they don't have a good return policy, then, you know, I'm going to take my business elsewhere. People really expect these types of policies when they're looking to make a purchase online now because it's been really widely adopted. And there's a lot of consumer research showing that if your company does not offer, you know, at the very least, a 30-day full money-back guarantee policy, then people just won't order stuff from you. And the competition is so stiff online that, that retailers can't really afford to not offer these policies. So you get people ordering a lot of stuff that they're not sure about, a lot of stuff that might not fit, and sending it back. And as a consumer, once you've turned something over to the post office, dropped it in the mail, whatever, your visibility of of what happens to that thing basically ends. Um, And that is largely by design, (laughs) because I think that if people understood what happened after they returned something this way, or what might happen, they would be a lot less likely to buy as much as they do. And it's in the best interest of stores for you to buy a lot. Totally. And, you know, your your story in that sense was pretty eye-opening. So let's talk about the scope of this real quick. Estimates vary, but in the past year, they say that one-third to one-half of all clothing bought in the U.S. came from the Internet. So you know, when you're talking about return rates, 
the average brick and mortar store has a return rate in the single digits. But online, this is anywhere from 15 to 30 percent. And retailers took back more than $100 billion in merchandise sold online. So we're talking about a lot of stuff coming back. Now let's get into some of the messy part. What happens when stuff gets sent back? Like I said, it'll go to bulk resellers sometimes. Sometimes, you know, if they're electronics or something, they'll be stripped for parts. And a lot of times things are just plainly thrown away. What happens after you return something depends largely on what that thing is. If it's a dress from a fast fashion store, a lot of times that will just be thrown away. Because if you if you look at the numbers of it and the companies who sell this stuff are just going on math, they're not going on anything else. By one estimate, every return costs a, a retailer 10 to $20 before you factor in the cost of shipping in either direction. So if you are you know, sending something back at the end of the return policy, which might be 30 days, might be 60 days, and it's a fast fashion dress, then it's not clear, it's not obvious whether or not that thing will even still be for sale on the retailer's website for it to be restocked and sent to somebody else. It's also not clear whether that thing can be can be sold at full price if it is still stocked because fast fashion in particular turns over so fast and because it, its fit tends to be really variable. The quality of goods tends to be really unpredictable. It has yeah. both really high return rates and really pretty bad rates of restocking. That's why in some cases they even just say, hey, well, keep that size, maybe gift it to somebody else. We're going to send you the right size. It's like, we don't even want to deal with it coming back. Just hand it off to somebody else. And retailers like Amazon, Target, I think Walmart also have started just telling people to keep stuff that they want to return in the past couple of years, which is sort of giving away the game here. Because if they're not taking it back, it's because they would lose money taking it back. So this whole process for one item is often just too expensive to accommodate some of the cheap stuff that people buy and people buy it by the container load. So when that happens, things are either going to be thrown away, just put directly into a landfill, or they're going to be offloaded to a sort of gray market that not a lot of people are aware of. In that stuff gets sold off by the pound, by the pallet, by the container load. Some of that will go to outlet stores, off-price stores, TJ Maxx, things like that big lots to be sold again, hopefully, and if not, then probably thrown away. Or it gets sold to middlemen who ship it overseas and piece by piece go through it and see what they might be able to sell to people in poorer countries through stores there. And then what they don't think they can sell in stores there gets thrown away. So it becomes a trash problem in another country. But it's really hard (laughs) to keep track of what happens to any of this after it's off the initial retailer's books. They aren't keeping track. You move so naturally through your article. That's why I always appreciate your writing. You make a note in the article. So here's the point where you start thinking, why don't people start donating this stuff more? Why don't companies donate this? And that's another problem, too, with with money, obviously. You know, there's a thing called brand dilution. You start giving away things too much. It's going to make, you know, some of your other stuff seem less valuable. So it's not in their best interest to even donate things that are really just going to be going to waste. And you especially get into this with things that are sort of like upmarket branded. So name brand, shoes, clothing, things like that. There there have been a, a number of distinct scandals over the years with particular luxury brands who have been caught destroying, burning, shredding piles of winter coats and things like that, which are, are things that, you know, people in the United States need. That's under no circumstances something that everybody has access to here. But those things end up destroyed because... The calculation that brands do is that if they start clothing 
poor people essentially with their with their wares and with their brand name, then the people who buy their stuff for full price are going to decide that it's not worth that anymore. So their branding theoretically cannot survive right. charity. And like I said, there's no regulation on what businesses uh, are supposed to do with their excess stock. So they are absolutely free and clear if they make the calculation to destroy this stuff instead of giving it to people who could use it. The retail logistics industry is in two parts. The forward logistics, which is all the stuff, moving it from the manufacturers all the way down to us. Reverse logistics is what we're talking about right now that gets really messy. It's expensive for the companies to take it back. And as we've been discussing, a lot of times doesn't get restocked, any of that. So what do companies say about this? I mean, this is a, it seems to be a threat, at least money-wise, you know, how this baked in idea now that everything should be able to be returned regardless, it's expensive. So what do companies say about it? What are they doing about it? This is one of those sort of rare topics in consumerism where basically everyone involved agrees that this is bad and that we wish it weren't like this. Reverse logistics, two different experts that I spoke to for the article use the word nasty to describe it. It is really expensive, labor intensive, sometimes literally gross work to do. They would rather not have to deal with it. They would rather find good ways to to limit their returns and to ensure that more people who bought from their stores actually kept their merchandise. That would make a lot of things about their businesses a lot easier. But they've got a consumer base that has a lot of choices and that has, has been incentivized into a certain set of behaviors that really nobody is willing to let go of. I think that, you know, as far as everyone I spoke to and and what I know about the consumer industry, what would probably have to happen for this to change to any significant extent would have to be some sort of regulation on how on how retailers are allowed to dispose of their extras. You know, probably Amazon deciding right. that they just don't want to play this game anymore yeah. and that you're going to have to keep your stuff if you order it and relying on the fact that they are so big and so deeply woven into so many people's lives to cushion the fact that they would probably lose some customers over that. And then once the big boys do it, the smaller companies are sort of free to move in line with those policies. But until until someone with some real power decides that this is something that's not going to be tolerated anymore, I think people are just going to end up continuing to engage in this behavior. And for a lot of people, like if you live in a rural area, if you don't have reliable transportation, if you wear a size outside of a really narrow norm, if you are disabled in certain ways that make it harder to use physical stores for you, or if you just live in a place where a lot of the stores have closed because everybody shops online now, you know, you might not have a lot of great options except ordering three sizes of one thing (laughs) on the internet and trying to figure out you know, what your size is at a a new store or something like that. Even if you don't want to partake in that behavior, even if you understand that it's bad, there are just a lot of circumstances that sort of push you into it because that is how the retail powers that be have decided that this is going to work. It's just so interesting in a time when we're hearing constant stories about supply chain issues and manufacturing problems. This is that flip side of the stuff. Once you get your stuff and you send it back as Uh, for whatever reason, it gets just as messy. So it's a great article. I suggest everybody go out and read the whole thing. Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.